Good morning. If you would, I'd invite you to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 3. Uh, Mark chapter 3. Uh, fall is, like I said, officially upon us. The temps have dipped below 100 degrees, I think, for good now. Uh, we turned the calendar from August to September. Men, football season is well on its way, making Saturdays great again. I know y'all love that. Ladies, pumpkin spice and everything nice is all in full swing. You go to Target or whatever, everything is fall-themed, orange, everything. Uh, well, we too here at Second Baptist, okay, we've turned the page from our summer series into our fall series where we were switching from Jeremiah now to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for the next three months all fall long. So September, October, November, all the way up to Thanksgiving, we're going to be moving through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, today is actually our third installment of this three-month-long series. So to provide a quick recap, uh, for those of you, maybe this is your first time, welcome, we're glad you're here. Or uh, if you've been in and out over the past three months, just a broad overview, Mark is one of four eyewitness gospel accounts in the Bible. And it is an eyewitness account of the message, the man, the ministry, the mission of Jesus Christ. What he said, what he did, who he is, and why that's important. And Mark was actually the earliest and shortest of those four eyewitness gospel accounts. And just like any four people would write about a same person or same events with their own perspectives, you know, those people would emphasize certain things in different ways, you know, through their own personal lens of interpretation. Well, that's what the four gospel writers do as well. They talk about the same events, about the same person, but provide a different angle of perspective and different emphases to make a point. Um, and so Mark, he writes his gospel uniquely to the Roman and Gentile audience with a special focus on Jesus as king over all things. His kingdom ethos, his kingdom ethic is categorically different than other kings that the Romans and Gentiles would be otherwise familiar with. And something that we'd be, you know, it would be other, otherwise than what we would expect too of a king or a ruler or a deity. And so in a day and age where um, the Gentiles and the Romans, they saw worthy leaders or great, big, larger than life figures as somewhat divine. And they saw them divine through their political power and military strength and resource acquisition and fundraising and money. Mark aims to show that Jesus is a king, truly the king, but his kingdom and his kingship is just radically subversive than how we might otherwise consider what kings and kingdoms, how, to, uh, how they would otherwise operate. This king leads through suffering, he leads through service, he leads through sacrifice, which is just different than what they were familiar with. So for example, Mark opens, if you're here for week one, Mark opens with Jesus's debut as a leader. And it wasn't announced like other leaders from the regal halls of Jerusalem or from Rome. Rather, Jesus's kingship, it was announced in the wilderness at the Jordan River, which if you've been to the Jordan River, uh, it's pretty dirty and pretty low key and it just looks like a regular pond. Very, very humble. Back then, leaders were introduced to the public with an escort of chariots and soldiers and resounding trumpets. Well, Jesus, he was ushered in by really the refrain of a lone, impoverished, somewhat deranged-looking man, John the Baptist. <laughs> Most leaders, uh, they immerse themselves in the political scene immediately with stakeholders and gatekeepers, and they try to associate themselves with all the most powerful in the society. Well, Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River with a bunch of people who were kind of on the outskirts of town and those who were marginalized. And he associated himself with the fishermen and the paralytics and the tax collectors and those who people didn't really think twice of. That was how his kingdom and kingship began and it's how it gained steam. And that's who he was and what he was about. His authority even, Mark was saying, is not just 
accomplished through force, which back then would have been totally on brand for any leader. His kingdom would be actualized by matters of faith. It wasn't a currency dependent upon the earthly means or earthly things of the world. His kingdom would be driven by a principle of faith, one of the heart, one of submission to the will, not domination of the will. So that's what makes Jesus' kingdom and his authority very, very different. And as Mark shows and as he will show throughout the gospel of Mark, his authority will lead to restoration and deep soul redemption at a level that the earthly kingdoms and earthly kings of the world can't really produce on their own way. And so uh, Mark, all in all, he's trying to show that everywhere that Jesus goes, every person that he talks to, every city that he ends up in, what happens is that there's restoration and there's redemption that takes place and people get saved and people are healed physically and psychologically and demonic strongholds over areas that are broken. People's sins are forgiven. Just a very different kingship. And, And Mark's point is Jesus is the real king with real authority and his real authority actually makes a real difference. It's not just throw money at something and hope that it changes or make an area better and give education. And will that make people less evil? Probably not. Right after the enlightenment, the greatest moment in, uh, in education for our world, we had world war one, world war two. So it didn't really seem like it trended in the right direction. Jesus was going for something different. He's subversive. He's counterintuitive, but he's transformative. That's the beauty of his authority. You know, when we, uh, just high level here, when we think about authority just in our day and age, right? We live in a postmodern Western culture. When we think of authority, it's usually dominated by negative denotations. You think about authority, maybe you, you think of it as the opposite of autonomy. If I have, if there's authority in my life, and that's one less area where I have freedom. If there's authority in my life, and that's one less thing that I can't do, that someone else tells me that I should do, and, and in some respects, that's right, but it's, it's incomplete because the reality is that we live in a world governed by authorities in literally every aspect of life, from physics to gravity to language to mathematics to architecture to bank statements and credit and debit and everything. There is a law and order and authority to it that we are living in. So when you think about authority, how do you conceive of it? Do you think of just like an individual, like a boss? or an employer, or a politician, or a media voice? Do you think of, when you think of authority, like an institution, like the government, or the church, or the family? Or when you think of authority, do you think of, this is a Western, modern kind of idea, do you think of just an intuition? This is the way that I feel. And if this is the way that I feel, then it has to be true. And I demand, I demand that other people respect the way that I feel. And that is my authority. How do you conceive of all of it? it authority is everywhere. You can't escape from authority. There's no absolute autonomy. Absolute autonomy is the highest authority of self. So it's really a matter of what authorities you follow more than whether you follow any authority. And so what Mark's saying is that matters exceedingly in your spiritual life, just like it does in every other area of life too. What authority you follow determines everything. And so in Mark 3, we're going to jump into perhaps some of the earlier moments of Jesus's ministry. But even there, we're going to see that Mark is elaborating upon Jesus's authority over all things 
and his authority, it, it is subversive, but it's transformative. It's not what we expect, but his authority is unfathomably good. It's deeply restorative. It's, it's incredibly life-giving. And his authority is the authority that all of us need. And it's all what we're all really actually longing for anyway. So if you're taking notes, you're type A, you like to have an outline or whatever. I've got three spheres of Jesus' authority that we're going to touch on today. And they couldn't be more relevant for us. So I hope you found Mark 3 by now. I'm reading from the ESV translation. We're going to begin here in verse 1. And uh, here's how it begins. Again, <clears throat> Jesus entered the synagogue. He had a tradition of hopping from city to city, synagogue to synagogue, because that's where people would listen to the word of God. So he's putting himself in those positions for maximal impact. So again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And the religious leaders, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So what's going on here? So essentially you have the law of the land, the Sabbath laws. You have the leaders of the land, the religious leaders. You have Jesus looking for an opportunity to restore and to redeem once again with his law of love. And you see them, the religious leaders, looking for an opportunity to accuse and to condemn somebody according to their own law. Verse three, and Jesus said to them, or said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to the religious leaders, all right, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? because they're expecting him to heal this man, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. They didn't answer Jesus. Verse five. And so he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy Jesus. So number one, your notes this is the first thing that we see is that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath, the synagogue, and the Sanhedrin. He has authority over the Sabbath, the synagogue, and the Sanhedrin. First of all, what is the Sabbath? Um, if, if you're not uh, from a religious background, you might not hear that word that much because even in Christian circles today, we don't even use Sabbath quite frequently uh, when we're referring even to Sunday worship, which is somewhat of the equivalent. But the Sabbath, it, it dates all the way back to the time of Moses where uh, God commanded Moses, this is one of the Ten Commandments, that uh, there would be a one day a week where there is no working and there is only resting. So don't work seven days a week and drive yourself into the ground. You're, there's going to be dangerous things that happen when that happens. Um, and so uh, we all know that too. But it's essentially the Sabbath law is around God's will for us as we work and relate to the world. He's saying don't rest or don't work on the Sabbath. I want you to rest. Now, here's the tricky part. For those of you who are type A or you like, man, you're one of those who you save the manual for your car just in case, or like you save the manual for the TV just in case. You know, you got every single certain little situation that might come up and then you know exactly how to respond exactly for that situation. So maybe you're, you think, oh, well, okay, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. How do I do that practically? What qualifies? What constitutes as work? I want to make sure I'm obeying. I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. What are the clear expectations for the Sabbath? about whether, uh, whether we work or not. Okay, here, here's just a, as an aside. Here's a clear principle throughout Scripture. W when the letter of the law is not clear, you should ask yourself, what is the heart of the law? When the letter of the law is not clear, they don't give you every single detail of a certain situation, what is the heart of the law? So what is the heart of the Sabbath? It's rest, it's restoration, which means it can be different for different people. It might happen on different days. You might do it in different ways, but the principle of it, the heart of it is don't worship productivity, don't worship production, don't worship output. 
The Sabbath is God's check on us from being defined by and dominated by our work. So that life is only work. And my worth is my work. And my work is my worth. And you, and you can't get those apart. But by the way, God gives us the command of the Sabbath, just like in a way he gives us the command of the tithe. The tithe, where we're commanded to give 10% if we're a follower of Jesus. Uh, how so? Well, this, the Sabbath is a check on us not being defined and dominated by our work. So our life is more than just work. Well, the tithe is a check also on us from being defined by and directed by our net worth, where everything in life is about money. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the tithe is radically subversive to our day and age, is it not? The Sabbath is radically subversive to our day and age. What Chick-fil-A is doing, being closed 52 days a year, you know the kind of financial hit that takes on a Sunday where people are out and about the most? I mean, they're losing a ton of potential revenue. But God is clearly blessing that, and that is the way that he's wired the universe to work, and he wants people to feel good and be uh, replenished and to have rest. So if we obey the Sabbath, we obey the tithe, work and money, they don't rule our lives, we rule it. We rule money, money doesn't rule us. We rule our work, work doesn't rule us. We have margin, God gets ultimate authority in our lives. But, okay, but for those who, you know, they don't get the heart of the Sabbath, like the religious leaders here, so they're trying to make the law about the legality of the law itself rather than what the law actually points to. Y'all following? So it's the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, if you will, that they try to make the Sabbath clearer for people. Maybe they have the right heart behind it, ironically. But they, <laughs> history will show us they actually show they actually give 39 different laws specifically for the Sabbath to show specifically what work is and what work is not. I'm going to read a couple of them for you. This is what would qualify as work according to their 39 laws. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, selecting, plowing, planting, harvesting, reaping. Any of those things qualifies as work, can't do it, you're disobeying the Sabbath. That's social penalty right there. So they're putting guardrails around what is and is not work to keep people in line. I was even in Israel back in uh, November, and you can't use the elevator because if you were to press a button, that qualifies as work. So they have like different, so, but basically they, they have it uh, wired so that every, uh, on, on the Sabbath, every, every floor is stopped at by the elevator so that you don't have to press the button. It's like, that's how intense they're making it just so that you're following the law the right way. Because if you click a button, that's considered work. I think it's gotten a little bit off the heart of what the Sabbath is all about. Now, where's this all taking place, by the way? The synagogue, Right. So back then, the, the, the synagogue is the place where the Jews, they would meet for worship and fellowship, similar to a modern-day church building today, where we would meet once a week for worship and fellowship. And people would go to the synagogue typically on the Sabbath. You could go to it on a Wednesday or on a Thursday, just like you can here. But this is like the main day that you would come to the building to hear from God's word, to meet with God's people. And those are the things that people would look to as a way to restore their soul and to find rest for everything that they're going through. That's the heart of the Sabbath. Now, what's happening here in the story? So Jesus, he goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath and heals a man with a withered hand. Okay? All the while, the Pharisees, they're watching, looking to accuse Jesus of how he's breaking one of their own Sabbath laws. Now, here's what's so interesting about the story, though. Astonishingly enough, the main focus, maybe you got this vibe as you're you're reading it. The main focus of this passage is actually not the miracle of healing. Did you catch that? 
The main focus is not the miracle. The miracle actually serves a tangential role, namely to put the main focus on the fact that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath, over their laws and rules, and over the Sanhedrin. See, in a Jewish society, any mere suggestion of that idea, that someone was greater than the law, the Sabbath, I mean, that was highly blasphemous. Like, if vocalized explicitly, punishable by death. They took that very, very seriously. Not only that, any hint that uh, someone was greater than the Sanhedrin's law, their own laws, well, that was a red alert to the, uh, a threat to their power of the religious leaders. They didn't want to be overthrown. Any, anybody who wants to, to stand in the way of their laws, well, he needed to be put away with. So given both those things together, that's why verse 6, the Pharisees say um, immediately they sought to destroy Jesus. But notice that Jesus' language is, this is, this is very interesting. Does Jesus claim to be above the Sabbath, the law of God? He doesn't do that explicitly. Does he claim to be above their own laws? No. I mean, he doesn't really say it explicitly. He's not trying to assert his authority or to try to assert dominance in that situation. He's trying to heal and to redeem and to restore and to show what the heart of the Sabbath is all about, which his authority actualizes. So how does he do it? He says, he asked the Pharisees, this is what Jesus always does to make a point. He always asks questions, which I think is a great principle for us. Always ask questions first when you're trying to make a point. He asked them, the Pharisees, to interpret the law, which is their own job. Verse four, he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? How'd they respond? They just kind of shrugged. They were silent. They were consumed in the law itself, not why the law was actually there in the first place. Uh, by the way, just another side note here. This is how you can expose the legalistic spirit in religion. Okay, just ask the question why behind something. Think of something in your mind that you have had a, a weird experience with, legalism with. Just ask, well, why? Why was it that way? Why did they double down in this certain way that seems a little bit unfair to nuance and circumstance? Why? Legalists say, well, we do this because, well, we do it this way and don't question it and just follow it. It's black and white. There's no nuance. There's no gray. There's no situational awareness. There's no consideration of the person or the situation. Okay, it's just it's just the law for the law's sake. Um, I'm kind of going on a tangent here. Uh, I'm a Carolina fan. I'm a Tar Heel. And uh, the UNC has made headlines over the past two weeks or so because one of the wide receivers they have, Tez Walker, actually got ruled out by the NCAA even though he was – very arguably in within bounds to go through the transport portal portal and to play this year. He moved to Chapel Hill because his grandmother grandmother was sick, so he wanted to be close to his grandmother and also play football. And it looked like it was good, but the NCAA ruled, well, according to our rules, we don't like that. And so and it's causing this whole like lawsuit situation and all that. So basically they're looking at the NCAA like he's within bounds, but like there's one little small qualification. What's the heart of this transfer portal law all about? Right? Giving people flexibility to do what they need to do. And in this case, care for his grandmother. And they're saying, nope, we don't, we're not going to let that because it, it crosses the way that we think the law should be interpreted. So people are really upset about that. The similar thing is happening here. But once Jesus sees the man's withered hand, he heals it. And in healing the man's withered hand, he exposes the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts over this situation that really, they only really care about their view of the Sabbath not recognizing the real purpose of the Sabbath, which is restoration and rest and wholeness. So Jesus heals the man, miracle, it's a wonder, it's amazing. There's no moment of celebration. There's no support for this man who was disabled and now he's healed. 
It was just their laws were violated. And Jesus looks at them and he says that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Uh, the Greek word for that is interesting. It's the word uh, poros te cardias. Poros te cardias, which if you think about it, it, it there's, there's a medical definition there, if, if any of you are in medicine, where poros means like it's so hard, it's calcified. It's no longer soft. It's so calcified and cardias, the heart, cardias cardiac. It's it's calcified beyond the point of being softening again. So the only way to cure this type of heart is to break it and reform it from there. That's the only, that's the only hope for their hearts at this point. So this type of hardness of heart, it's this posture of arrogance. It's this posture of saying to God, I've already made up my mind on this issue. This is the way that it is. I'm going to believe it and stick with it. And this is how I'm going to behave in light of it. And no one's telling me otherwise. That's that kind of hardness of heart that Jesus is receiving here. That, by the way, that posture of heart is no different um, than many of us, and certainly not in the day and age that we live in as well when it comes to the things of God and his, and his word. We hear statements like the, like very similar, like the following. You ever heard this before? Talk to someone about uh, Christianity or the Bible or Jesus, and they say, well, I could never believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize that your view of God was truth and that you are the arbiter of truth. Uh, well, I will do what's right for me, and you do what's right for you, and as long as we don't harm each other, then we're fine. You ever hear that? Oh, so you get to determine what's right and wrong, and you get to determine what's harmful or not. And as long as it fits into your economy, then, then we're good. It sounds like you're, again, the ultimate arbiter of truth. Or this is my truth, and I will follow it, and I demand that you respect it. It's the same posture of arrogance where Jesus is putting on full display here, hey, this is absolute uh, self-authority. This is absolute autonomy of the will. It makes the self the highest authority. It, it gives itself the reservation of, I determine right, wrong, good, bad, true, false, and nobody else does. Religious people and secular people both do this. N- none of us are exempt from this. And so when Jesus heals the, the man's withered hand, he, he's doing more than a miracle here. He, he's putting himself above their own laws and he's putting himself above their own authority. He's saying, no, no, you don't, you don't write the rules. I do. You don't call the shots for the Sabbath. I do. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. All these laws are an extension of my character all along. He gets, the, he gets the authority. They don't. Now, a final note on this section before we move on to the next one. Something beautiful here I don't want you to miss. Okay, refer back to the man with the withered hand, right? Um, Jesus healing his hand on the Sabbath as opposed to healing someone who's sick or uh, has any other issue. Healing his hand on the Sabbath is especially significant. Why? Because the hand is the symbol of work. You think about that? So when Jesus heals the man's hand on the Sabbath, he's saying, I am the true Sabbath, the only one who can give you true rest from your work and deep relief for your soul. He Think about it this way. The guy's withered hand, he'd had a withered hand maybe his whole life. So Jesus could have been like, hey, meet me on Monday, same time, same place, and I'll heal your hand. I don't want to break the laws of the Sabbath. Why did Jesus made it a point to do it on the Sabbath, right? When he could have done any other time, because he's making the point that he has the authority on the Sabbath to bring restoration and wholeness, because that's where it's found. It's found in him and no one else. So when, when this man submitted to the lordship of Jesus... The withered muscles in his hand, they began to work again, began to, get, began to be renewed with strength and restoration. 
When the Pharisees, when they balked at the lordship of Jesus, the very opposite happened. Their own, their own uh, greatest muscle, the muscle of the heart, the spiritual muscle of love, it was actually withered beyond uh, redemption. It was, it was totally contracted. It was totally calcified and corrupted. So the, the, the principle for us is very, very clear. When we follow the authority of our own hearts, rather than the authority of Jesus, our own hearts it, are our hands. They calcify and they corrupt. But when we submit to the lordship of Jesus with our work, with our relationships, with any area of life, we're restored and healed and made whole again. According to Jesus, the Sabbath is, it's for us, it's his will for us to have rest and restoration and wholeness. It's not just a law that he expects us to follow because we should follow it because that's the right thing to do. It's a gift to us. Now, question for each of us today is, do, do you even, just thinking broadly about the Sabbath, do you have a Sabbath? Do you honor the Sabbath? Is there a, a time a week where you put aside your work and you have that tendency, trust me, I'm this way too, where you're like, but I could be more productive if I just worked another hour or two here or there. I'd be more productive. I would get ahead if I just clocked in five more, six more hours today. And you, the reality is that, yes, you would get ahead. Yes, you would be more productive. The question is at what cost? Not just obedience, but even to your own, even to your own self. What, what ramifications are we giving when we are becoming dominated by our work and we can't ever put it away? Let's, let's, keep, let's keep reading. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Iduma, or Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from the Tyre and the Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Excuse me. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he called the apostles, or twelve disciples that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. Verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's completely lost it. Verse 22, and the scribes, they came down from Jerusalem saying, ah, here's what's going on. He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, then that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, number two in your notes. A lot to work through, but main points here. Number two, Jesus has authority over the spirits and Satan. So Jesus doesn't only have authority over the Sabbath and the synagogue and the Sanhedrin. Those are the laws of the land, the rulers of the land. He also has authority over the spirits and Satan, the spiritual powers of the world. Not just the physical and political powers of the world, but the spiritual powers of the world over those. So Jesus' message and ministry and mission, all of it, is not just to redeem society from its social issues and ailments. And there are that, those. But ultimately, there's something beyond that. There is a darkness. There is a demonic influence that's happening in our world. The writer of Ephesians calls it this present darkness. And Jesus' message and mission is to dissipate 
that's spiritual darkness in the world and to break demonic strongholds on earth because they're everywhere. And everywhere Jesus goes, he's trying to push back the darkness and to bring freedom from the demonic strongholds, okay? Two main verses that I want to particularly spotlight here, verse 11 and verse 15. So look in your Bible back to verse 11. You see Mark gives this superlative, absolute effect that Jesus's presence has on the dark domain. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, you're the son of God. So whenever, in all situations, he has absolute authority. In other words, the, the demons, they responded to his absolute authority with total submission, bowed down to his power, affirmed his status. They had no more power when he was near. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus then, because of the situation, man, he's making a lot of uproar around town. He's really gaining steam. Um, he's not on social media, but everybody knows him. And they're always trying to follow him and get close to him and get, get healing and freedom and all this. And people are trying to get wherever he is. And because of that, I mean, he's max, Jesus is maxing out his bandwidth. He can't meet with more people on his own because the, the need, the demand is higher than what he can actually give. There's only so many time or only so much time in a day. He's only one person. He can only be in one place. So what does he do? He tries to maximize his reach by endowing his 12 disciples with his own authority. Verse 14, 15 to preach and to cast out the demons. Okay. So Jesus is trying to, by commissioning these 12 disciples, he's trying to spread the gospel message and to spread the rate of deliverance from the demonic by expediting it through the exponential of 12. Did I say that right? Mathematically, exponent of 12. There we go. It's been a little while since a math class. Since that, from the exponent of 12. So he's trying to multiply his impact and reach more people and, and, and save and bring light and freedom to areas that are dark and demonic. Now, to put it lightly, though, while this is all happening, um, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they are causing this like tidal wave level of religious and social upheaval all throughout Israel. I mean, they're, they're like really creating a lot of issues. It's top of the town, all over the news. People are taking off PTO to come see what's happening. You know, everything is in, in a mess. And so no matter who you are in this situation, it demands some type of explanation, does it not? I mean, we even had this happen like, you know, back in the fall or back in the spring. We're in the fall. Back in the spring, there were – in Houston, it's all the same thing. It's all hot. So I don't think of it that way. Um, back in the spring, there were all those like revivals taking place across the country. Did you all hear about this at Asbury and other places? And, and people were like taking off work to go to these revivals to just check out what was happening. It was all over the news, all over the media, all over the internet. Um, this is kind of happening here. It, people want an explanation. They're like, well, what's going on? And how do I get into get in on it and, and all that? Who Who is Jesus? The sick are being healed and demons are being cast out. And what's the explanation? So as for Jesus' own family, what did they say? Uh, yeah, our own son has lost his mind. He's crazy. He was a carpenter and now he's casting out demons and uh, or something. I don't know. He's crazy. And we can't. we don't even have a normal life anymore. What does the rest of the community say? Well, their opinions kind of vary. They're like, was well, he a messiah? Is he a prophet? Is he a false prophet? Is he a magician? How do we really know one way or another? And of course, okay, enter the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the scribes once again. And they have come from their spiritual and social ivory towers of Jerusalem to come give an explanation so that everybody is now clear on what's happening and they can kind of bring order back to society and to the religious establishment and to their own power, okay? What's their call? What do they say? They say something interesting. Look at verse 22. They say, Ah, Jesus, this guy, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. 
he casts out other demons. Okay, well, what does that mean? First, who is Beelzebul? Did anybody read Lord of the Flies like in high school? Okay, they actually use this word in that book, Beelzebul, and, and here's why. The title Beelzebul uh, literally meant Prince Baal, which was a false god, or Lord of the Flies, meaning like an overlord of demons. And uh, according to one biblical scholar, Beelzebul was more than just a religiously demonic title for something that was deeply uh, demonic. It was also somewhat of a sardonic, cutting title that you would use for someone who was kind of crazy, like out of their mind. So they're calling Jesus Beelzebul. They're saying, yeah, he's mad, he's loony. And also, he's probably an overlord of demons. That's why he's able to cast out the demonic. Now, here's what I want to point out. Um, their logic, their verdict here, is it sound? Is it valid? Yeah. Like, hold with, hold on. Okay, you're like, what, what? Okay. Is their logic sound? Can a demon of higher authority have the power to summon and cast out demons of lower authority? Boss them around. Yes, that makes sense. Here's the only problem. Even though that logic flows, the premise is wrong. Okay, they're starting with the presupposition that Jesus is demonic. Okay, so cold hard logic that they have, which is actually sound, it's actually downstream from the coldness of their own hearts. They've already decided on what they want to be true, and now they're making up logic to verify it. By the way, this is, this is a profound principle of faith. If you want to write this down, what our hearts want, the mind will justify and our actions will follow. What our hearts want, our minds will justify and our actions will follow. That is the progression of faith that you see all throughout the Bible. Meaning these Jesus haters, maybe even your own atheist friends in the office, they can be very logical and they can be very sound. Seriously, they can be. They can be inside of their own frameworks that they have already determined is true. We do this too in a variety of ways. Like I'm not just picking on atheists and secular people. As believers, we do this. We start with a conclusion that we want about a certain situation then we develop rational and reasons to justify that conclusion. And then we follow through with it because we've given ourselves the right to do it. And now we don't feel guilty because, well, we already determined that the conclusion that we wanted is already true. We didn't actually challenge the thing that we actually wanted. We just justified it. How does Jesus respond to the theological error of these social elites, these scribes? What he does, is he actually teases out their own logic here. And by doing so, he kind of exposes, shines a light on their inconsistencies and their errant assumptions. Look at verse uh, 23. He says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Okay, in other words, Jesus is saying, this is brilliant. He's saying, according to your own logic, you'd have to admit that even this scenario a demon versus demon duel, a sinister and suicidal civil war, that would actually be a good thing. Why? Because that would mean that the demonic domain is coming undone and, kingdom, and Satan's kingdom is actually crumbling. You want to admit to that? You want to say that that's a good thing now? And they had been clearly stumped. They're like, no, we can't admit to that. You know. So by virtue of their own logic, they, they, they were kind of in a bind. Jesus had exposed the holes in their own thinking, and even deeper than that, he, he was showing the, the sadistic nature of their own hearts that was already bent on a certain conclusion regardless. 
Uh, biblical scholar Alan Cole, he, he writes beautifully on the, on, the, on the spiritual posture here of these people and, and absolutely the trouble of pride in our own eyes as well. He says this, he says, the Jewish elite, they could not deny that Jesus had expelled demons. Yet, running counter to all common sense, as Jesus himself pointed out by a simple illustration, they attributed his good work to an evil agency. This would assume a dichotomy of evil, a civil war within the kingdom of darkness, which would not only be a practical impossibility, it would be a theological absurdity. Prejudice to believe what they wanted to believe had blinded their eyes to see what was obvious to simple souls. Where do you feel like Jesus does this in our own eyes, in our, in our own lives and how we see the world, how we perceive? Where we're already bent against Jesus's authority in a certain way, but really we just run counter and try to justify and jump through hula hoops to make it fit whatever we want. Well, Jesus, I know what you say about sex and relationships, and I, I'm going to do things my way because, well, it just makes more sense this way. And we love each other and like, and we'll get married. And I know what you, but you can jump through some hula hoops, try to argue yourself into it. I know what you say about money, God, the tithe. I mean, that's, I'm in debt. By the way, we're all probably in debt. You own a car, you own a house. Everyone's in debt. It's how you use the debt. It's about more about income than debt. But I'm going to do this first anyways. Jesus, I, I know what you say about forgiveness and bitterness, but it doesn't make sense in this scenario to forgive until they actually understand what they put me through. That's putting your own conditions on certain things. That, that's not Jesus' authority. That's you using Jesus as a idea and as an opinion and you retaining your own authority. Have you ever convinced yourself into willful disobedience? I'll be the first one to say I have to. We all have. Jesus concludes his answer this way, and it is so on brand of Jesus. This is what he says. To now use cold, hard logic, he's now trying to break through their cold, hard hearts, okay? Verse 27, no man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So meaning Jesus here is stronger than that strong man who previously occupied the house of said life or said person. So Jesus is saying, I, I can reclaim the territory in people's hearts with redemption and with restoration. I can set someone free from the demonic, from bitterness, from self-authority, because I'm greater than the demonic. I am greater than a certain past. I am greater than, than your own authority to not forgive yourself even. And you can finally find freedom there. So what do you, maybe, I don't know where you're at. Each of us are in many different places, but is there something that you feel particularly bound by? Maybe it's a, an addictive thought or it's an addictive action. It's an identity crisis or, or a past thing that happened or bitterness or grief or control. Jesus is given an invitation here that he can free you from these strongholds. Only he can. Your authority can't. My authority can't. No institution or individual can. can. Ultimately, he can. He has forgiveness. He can free us. And we're going to see that in his last verses here. We'll get verse 28. This will conclude our passage for the day. Truly, I say to you all, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, because we all commit blasphemies. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And we're going to end that passage on a very light note, right? Uh, number three in your notes. 
Um, Jesus has authority over sin and salvation. Jesus has authority over sin and salvation. That's number three, your final point in the note. So, okay, so lastly, Jesus ends this interaction in a very interesting way. And he, he says one of the heaviest things in the Bible. Maybe if you grew up in church circles, there was always like that. Is there an unforgivable sin? And how do you know if you did it or not? And have I committed it? And how do I know? And what if I didn't realize that I did it? And it, yeah, how do I make it right? And do I make it right? Okay, so I hope that this last statement, I can hopefully pro- provide a little bit of clarity and reassurance here if you've ever asked that question, because I certainly have myself. So first, what is blasphemy? Because that is kind of a theme throughout this passage, right? People blaspheming against God. Blasphemy in, in general just means this. It means extreme defiance or just irrelevance towards the things of God and towards God himself. It could refer to like cursing God's name, defiling the sacred things of God, things that are his. But broadly, this isn't something that just happens in the New Testament. I mean, anyone can be irreverent, curse God's authority, defile his sacred things or spaces, right? Like, I mean, in fact, Moses, uh, um, he gave a, a particular prince, uh, particular law in the Leviticus. He said, if anybody curses the name of God, they shall be put to death. So in extreme cases of blasphemy, it warranted death. Now, the penalty of blasphemy is death, which is extreme, and it is an extreme case. But if you think about it, the heart of blasphemy is really the heart of all sin, is it not? All sin, big or small, public or private, explicit or implicit, is blasphemy because we, uh, we defy God's authority. And we say, I want to follow my own authority. And we really defile God's things, his, his sacred things, his world. Sin says, I'm going to do things my way, not your way. We defy God's authority, that's blasphemy. Sin says, I'm going to treat God's sacred things, money, sex, relationships, work, the world around me, family, according to my own law, not according to his we desecrate his, his sacred things. Everything is sacred because it's his. Blasphemy. So if everybody's guilty of blasphemy, and does that mean everybody can't have forgiveness? Is that, is that what's going on here? Right? Do you want to lean into this? Not entirely. And here's why. This situation in this text is unique. Okay, this particular case involves a type of blasphemy that can't be duplicated or redone again. Okay, what do I mean by that? How how so? See, these religious leaders, they had the law and the prophets. If anybody knew who to expect, it was them. And now they have God in the flesh before their very eyes, and they're attributing him and his work and his miracles and his restoration to an act of Satan. Can't get any more uh, blasphemous than that. And this is what Jesus says. According to Jesus, their blasphemy in that moment was the final straw their final rejection of God's grace. Because he's like, if this isn't going to do it for you, then I don't know what will. So this is what seals your unpardonable sin. That is guilt that makes you guilty for eternity. They'd started on that course. And in that moment, from that moment, God was just going to let them keep going in that direction. And there wasn't any, any reason that they would turn back around. That's what he's saying. That type of blasphemy is the unpardonable sin. Now, in light of that, can we still blasphemy today? Yes, all sin is blasphemy. Can we blasphemy in that kind of way? No, Jesus is not here in front of us in the flesh. He's at the right hand of God in heaven. Okay, so it's not the same. So is blasphemy pardonable or not? Yes and no. Okay, here's what I mean. Blasphemy against God, okay, which is a life of sin, defying his authority, desecrating his things, which we have all done, it is pardonable through the blood of Jesus, but it is unpardonable 
if you continue on that route until you die. And if you reject the only place where there is forgiveness, then you have sealed your unpardonable fate. And that's kind of commonsensical, is it not? If you reject, if we reject the only one who has forgiveness, then of course we will not be forgiven. That's why all sin is pardonable, except if you reject the place where you can find pardon. So that's what Jesus is saying here. I have authority over all sin, over all salvation. But if you reject me, you reject forgiveness and you reject life. So just to lay in the plane, I, I want to point out there's the passage ends with a, a tinge of irony here. And it's an, it's an invitation to each of us as we read. See, if, if you recall, what does what happens at the beginning of this chapter three? They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, right? At the end of this passage, what is Jesus doing? He's accusing them of blasphemy. The message here is that at a high level, big picture, sin in general is blasphemy against God. It is self-authority. We accuse him of not having authority, and we, re- we reserve the right to have authority in our own lives. All of us have done that. That is the heart of sin. Like the Pharisees, we'd rather have our authority than Jesus' authority in our life so that we can live the way that we want to live. But see, the gospel message is twofold. This is what Jesus points out here. He's saying that sin and self-authority, it leads to death. It leads to withered hands and withered souls, and it leads to restlessness. It doesn't lead to restoration. But the good news is that Jesus comes to pay our penalty of sin. He comes to die the death that we should have died for our own blasphemy, punishable by death, that he took on the cross as if he committed that blasphemy so that we could have his righteousness as if we had never blasphemed God. And that's the way that God sees us. That's the hope and the grace of the gospel message. See, on the cross, Jesus's hands and feet were nailed to a tree. You could even say that he took on withered hands for us. He became disabled. He became dysfunctional. He became the condemned for us so that through faith in him, we might have new life, new strength, new rest, new work for his kingdom. One where we are Sabbath people, not just to honor it one day a week, but our lives are defined by rest, deep soul rest that floods through every other part of our life. That's how Jesus restores at the deepest level. Do you think you're at a place where I need, I need forgiveness or I need, I need freedom from X, Y, and Z? Submitting to Jesus' authority leads to that freedom. Does your soul need rest from trying to accomplish your own identity or trying to fend for yourself in a way that you think other people aren't fending for you or defining or determining or whatever it is? There's always restlessness and restlessness and restlessness. That is the spirit of Beelzebul alive in our day and age that we're tapping into if we're never finding rest. The sign of a Christian is that you have deep soul rest. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for the rest that we have in your son. I thank you that he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. I thank you that he's saved us. He's delivered us from the pressure to measure up to the law. He's delivered us from our sin and our slavery and our oppression and our addiction and our ability to try to define things by our own and to take life on our own. God, I just thank you that you've given people your people, a rest that the world is longing for. And God, I pray for each of us that we would be people of rest, and that people around us, the world around us would sense that rest and be, be drawn to your son. I pray this in your name. Amen.